Sometimes the Lord says hard things to his people. He does this because as a perfectly righteous and holy God, he will not let wickedness go unpunished. Make no mistake about it, every sinful act will be brought to account. The judge of heaven and earth does not let sin slide. But God also tells us hard things because he's a merciful God. And he desires us to turn from our wicked ways, which he knows will only reap destruction in the end. Isn't that why we just read here in Isaiah 1? After revealing the depths of Israel's wickedness, God say, come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they will become like wool. This is a reminder to us that it's God's kindness which leads us to repentance. How loving, after all, would a doctor be if he finds malignant cancer in your body, and yet rather than telling you that hard reality, so you could take the drastic measures necessary to save your life, this doctor instead tries to minimize the seriousness of your situation. How cruel would that be? You see, sometimes the Lord will tell his people hard things because he's holy. He's righteous. And sometimes he does it because he loves us enough to tell us the truth. Those two things work together. And it's not just an Old Testament thing we're talking about. We don't just hear hard words from the Lord like this in Isaiah or some of those angry minor prophets. This is precisely what we will hear today from the mouth of God's own Son. I want to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 11, the very end. Lord willing, we're rounding out chapter 11 today. We'll pick it back up in verse 37, Luke 11, 37, where Jesus is actually invited to a dinner party. And we're about to see things get pretty tense. I'm talking real tense. Like Jesus lighting into his host in front of everybody at the dinner party, tense. And then when another esteemed guest in attendance points out that Jesus has insulted him and really the entire group, Jesus indicates that this is exactly his intention. Suffice it to say that this is less than what you'd call polite dinner conversation. Jesus' invitation to the Thanksgiving dinner is probably going to get lost in the mail here. Let's read together. Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. This is God's word to his people. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, 
For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seed in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses that you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Yikes. Think for a moment, friends, how uncomfortable this dinner conversation would have been. I mean, talk about tense. This is a scathing rebuke of the religious leaders. And look at the courage of Jesus here at the end of Luke 11. He's sitting, or rather reclining, at this guy's table, and he is coming at him, coming at the host who invited him over to dinner like a freight train. Just look at Jesus' language. He says, you fools. He calls them unmarked graves. He says later, they're guilty of bloodshed. And not just any bloodshed. Guilty of all of the bloodshed by all of the martyred saints gone before. So, what is it that's got Jesus so worked up here? Well, it all started with a little hand-washing, or maybe more accurately, the lack thereof. Look at verse 38. The issue is not one of personal hygiene or cleanliness. It's not like Jesus' hands are, are filthy, dirty. This is a ceremonial ritual that had become, uh, become, uh, become excuse me, deeply entrenched into the Jewish religious system of this day. One biblical commentator, Leon Morris, sums it up this way. Morris writes, Before they had anything to eat, they would pour water over their hands as if to remove the defilement contracted by their contact with a sinful world. Now, let's be clear here. Jesus is not violating God's law. Jesus never violated God's law. He's spotless. He's sinless. Jesus has done nothing outside of God's word or God's ways. This, rather, is an elaborate cleansing ritual that was 
outside of Scripture, outside of what was stipulated in the Mosaic law. So then what's the deal? What's he violating? Well, he's violating their man-made rules, isn't he? These traditions of men. Look at Jesus' response to his astonishment, his, his shock, this Pharisee's shock in verse 39. Jesus says plainly, you Pharisees clean the outside, the outside of the cup, the outside of the dish, but inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. That's quite a picture, don't you think? What if you were to try that? What if you went to the back of the fridge, you know, the very back kind of left corner where that Tupperware has been sitting for who knows how long? And you were to pull out that Tupperware growing mystery mold of some sort, and you were to wipe down the front of that thing, and then offer it to your spouse for dinner. Gross. Who would do that? Get rid of that Tupperware anyway. Jesus' point is like that. It's, it's simple. He says it'd be totally ridiculous to clean the outside of something and leave the inside festering and dirty. Unless, of course, what you're really concerned with is what the outside looks like to others. Oh, sure. They looked holy. They were as holy as it comes. They had hands that were squeaky clean. But their hearts, their hearts were very much unclean in God's eyes. It's like the prophet Isaiah says it in the 29th chapter of his prophecy, Isaiah 29, 13, God says, this is a people who honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus doesn't mince words about this. What's he call those who are operating this way, who are, presu- who are presuming to clean the outside and operate with all this filth on the inside? He calls them, look at verse 40, fools. He says, since God made the outside and the inside, let your giving, let your alms, verse 41, be from the inside too. Jesus' point is quite clear. He's charging these religious elites with hypocrisy. It's it's as if Jesus says, you posers, cleaning the outside for people to see, while inside, you're vile. What follows here, if you're already uncomfortable, sorry, it's going to get worse. What follows from the mouth of your Savior are six woes, six expressions of grief, shock, and horror, and they come in two triads, two different groups of three. Jesus pronounces three woes first upon the Pharisees, and then another three woes upon what we See, as the lawyers or the experts in the law. So let's move through these woes. We'll try to do this quickly. And after each block of three, we'll pause for some application to our, to our lives here today in 2023. The first woe is found in verse 2. Jesus proclaims, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. 
This is Jesus' first pronouncement of woe to the Pharisees. He said, listen, you're tithing meticulously, even down to your garden herbs, and yet you're neglecting the big stuff, like, you know, justice and the love of God. Talk about majoring in the minors. I remember when I was teaching years ago, I had a full head of hair then, down in Atlanta, I would, uh, as an English teacher and a social studies teacher, I would occasionally assign our students projects to do, and sometimes they would choose to do them via PowerPoint. Lay off me. I know I'm old, and uh, I don't know if you even still use PowerPoint or not today. I've heard Google Slides is like more of the thing. Is that right, kids? Google Slides? Eh, whatever. Um, but I'd give them a project, and without fail, every year, there would be some kids who would submit this thing via PowerPoint, and the graphics were like, man, you need a pair of sunglasses. I mean, there were changing colors and bouncing in off the screens, and visually, these things were impressive. And yet, for all the glitz, there was like no research at all in the presentation, like none of the learning that they were actually supposed to, to look up and convey on this project. What were they doing? They were majoring in the minors. I'm glad your PowerPoint looks good. Now show me what you learned. Nothing there. This is what's happening here. The Pharisees are majoring in the frills and neglecting the important stuff. Matthew, when he records this parallel passage in his own gospel, even gives us a little more detail. This is easy to remember. Matthew 23, 23. I'll just read it for you quickly. Woe to you, Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected what he calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So listen now, according to Jesus, according to the Savior, there are weightier things and lighter things in God's Word. There are some things, all of God's Word is true and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, but there are some things that are more central. They're weightier. In other words, emphasis matters in our faith. You know that? Emphasis matters. There is a way for us to be so fixated on the little things, all the while absolutely neglecting or ignoring the weightier, more substantive truths. The example I often give is that the, the dimensions of the tabernacle in the Levitical law are important. They, they teach us something about God and His order, but the dimensions of the tabernacle are not nearly as important as what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, the thing of first importance. That's the gospel, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and on the third day, He was raised in accordance with the Scripture. Do you see? It's all true, but there are some things that are weightier, and our emphasis, friends, matters. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They were going overboard with their tithing. It was like they needed one of those scientific calculators. Did they still make those? Remember the good old TI-83 in calc class, some of you? 
They're using their, their scientific calculators to, to work out their tithe to the nearest decimal point. And yet they're neglecting the basics, a love for God, extending justice to their neighbors. By the way, we should note here that Jesus' answer to them is not that giving to God doesn't matter. No, Jesus said, you should give. You should give generously. There's a lot of other texts about that. But Jesus' correction is not, don't worry about giving to God. Do this other stuff instead. He said, no, do the big stuff first and do the others also. But don't neglect the weightier matters. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Woe to you, Pharisees, because your priorities are all out of whack. Woe number two, verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Well, this one's pretty simple. Whose glory are they most interested in? their own. You see, they were more concerned, these Pharisees, with the outward appearances than they were with their inward holiness. On the Sabbath, it was great. They had, they had their seats reserved. Everybody knew, whether because they were the biggest givers or what have you, that these were the really holy people. When they walked down the streets in the marketplace, they loved that greeting, Rabbi. More concerned with man's estimation of their own self-inflated uh, inflated importance than they were with their inward holiness. So according to Jesus, it's not just that emphasis matters in our faith. It's also that motivation matters to the Lord. Motivation matters. And this, I think, is a great diagnostic, by the way. Ask yourself the question from time to time, what's driving me to do this thing? What's motivating me here? Am I more concerned with appearing like I've got it all together or with genuine holiness? Philip Ryken puts it this way. He says, the heart of hypocrisy is this. We cannot seek God's glory in our own glory at the same time. Does this sometimes, in the lives of the Pharisees and in our own lives, look like raw selfishness? Well, sure it does. But there is another more subtle side, which looks like people-pleasing, which looks like the fear of man. It's desiring to be significant in the eyes of those around you. And friends, let me just confess to you, I am not immune to this. I don't know if you are, but my heart is prone to wander in this way. We sing a song by City of Light. I love it. It's called, Your Will Be Done. It starts with these lyrics. Your, your will be done, my God and Father, as in heaven, so on earth, my heart is drawn to self-exalting. Help me to seek your kingdom first. This is, this is the human condition. It's, it's my human condition. 
think we should guard ourselves from, as we're wont to do, wagging our self-righteous finger at the knuckleheads in the Bible, and there are many, when we've got the same impulse, we can't have the same impulse in our own hearts. Friend, do you need to hear Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees? Jesus warns us, don't love the best seats. Don't seek the praises of man. God looks to the heart. Again, there's this outside of the cup, inside of the cup dichotomy. But Jesus is moving, and he takes us right into woe number three, verse 44. Woe to you, this one hurts, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without even knowing it. Oof. According to the great theologian, Yosemite Sam, <laughs> them's fighting words. A little background here would be helpful, I think. According to the Old Testament law, anyone who touched a grave was unclean for seven days. Go read all about it in Numbers chapter 19. So, because of these legal regulations, the Israelites were extremely careful. In fact, they would often whitewash their gravestones so that people around them could see them and avoid walking on them. So Jesus here is actually laying down a double insult. He's giving them a one-two here. He says, not only, you Pharisees, are you dead? Are you rotten? Are you unclean on the inside? Filled with dead man's bones like a, like a grave. He says, you're also corrupting others. You're defiling those around you unwittingly, or unwittingly to them. They don't even know it. And they're getting sucked into your self-centered righteousness, your works-based righteousness. So in a way, Jesus is bringing this, I think, back full circle. Think back to the hand-washing that got this whole thing started. You know, the irony is that the ones who were fixated on ritual cleanliness are actually the dirty ones, Jesus says. Let's pause and come up for air, as we sometimes say. Let's think about how, how these woes, as harsh as they are, can be something that we are learning from and avoiding God's kind to his people and his warnings. First, if emphasis matters to the Lord, and it does, and if motivation matters to the Lord, and it does, then we should ask ourselves, am I, in any level in my life, like the Pharisees, am I majoring in the minors? Are there points, perhaps, of secondary doctrine, or maybe not even Bible doctrine at all, just, just man-made tradition that are occupying too much of my heart space, of my mind space? Maybe it's Bible translation. We've talked about this before. I won't belabor the point. The King's English 
refers to the king of England, not the king of kings. King James only. Right, like it says so where? Man's traditions versus what's really from the Lord. We do this, don't we? Especially we church folk tend to do this. How about this one? A style of music. Nothing will split a church like that. Or perhaps dress. My wife told me I was a bit overstuffed today. <laughs> Maybe it's this secondary doctrine that you just can't let go. This end times thing that you're convinced about or some other secondary issue. Not that this issue, not that any issue in the Bible is unimportant, but you've made a secondary thing the main thing. And you're causing all kind of heartache within God's people. Are you majoring in the minors? Perhaps it's not something doctrine related at all. Perhaps it's more related to your personal conduct. Are you really proud of your devotional consistency? read the Bible near every day, or perhaps your church involvement, you're really consistent, almost a bit righteous in the disciplines of faith, and yet perhaps lacking in the fruit of the Spirit. There's a way to be a faithful churchgoer and a miserable human being. And I know, because I've been there. Maybe you're devoted to checking off certain boxes in your faith, and yet you're living a relatively prayerless life. Many of us can sheepishly raise our hands there, can't we? Perhaps we're doing things for the wrong reasons. Just ask it, just by way of application as we wrap this part up and move on to the next three woes, I want to ask you a few simple diagnostic questions, a few heart check questions. Is your righteousness, friend, more about how you appear or about who you really are before the Lord? Are you doing this stuff for your parents, teenagers, kids? It's a good question for you. Do you own this faith? Or are you just sort of falling in line? Because it's just a little easier this way. It's not just a kid thing. Are, are, Are you walking through these motions because of expectations from family members or a spouse or friends? Maybe, maybe, as you walk through this faith journey, you've got a temptation every once in a while to mm, just post that thing on your socials, just to show the world how godly you are. Or to study dutifully for the Bible study coming up, just so you can flex your theological muscles as the Bible study gathers. Friends, I'm not wagging my finger at you. I'm saying, I've done all these things. Have you? Surely we ought not to roll our eyes at the self-righteous Pharisees without 
humbly asking before the Lord, Father, does my heart do this? Are my motivations right? Are my priorities before you right? Am I doing this for the right reasons, for your glory, not my own? All right. Let's pick it back up in verse 45. We see apparently in this passage that Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. At least he is in this meal. In verse 45, one of the lawyers speaks up and answers him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus says, precisely. Woe to you! And we get another wave, another triad of woes, this time levied specifically, not against the Pharisees, but the lawyers, which makes some of us step back and say, wait a minute, what's, what's the difference between the Pharisees and the lawyers? Well, depending upon your translation, that word lawyers can also be translated at other parts of the Bible, and, and even here in Luke 11, scribes. Sometimes that term is rendered experts in the law. So if this helps in your mind, you can put an equal sign between lawyers, lawyers equal scribes equals experts in the law. These lawyers were the theological heavyweights of their day. Remember, experts in the law to them meant experts in the Old Testament law. So these were the foremost preeminent Bible scholars and theologians. We can think of them today as a rough equivalent maybe to the seminary professors of the day. That was the lawyers, the scribes, the experts in the law. Whereas most of the Pharisees, although also extremely zealous for the law in their traditions, were primarily lay leaders who held other professions, other lines of work. So if this helps, you can kind of think of it as the Pharisees were more of a religious party or a denomination, if you will, and a lawyer or a scribe was a paid profession. Technically, if you're tracking with me, this might help. If not, just plug your ears. Technically, it was possible to be both. You could be a, a lawyer, a theological professional from the Pharisee party, but you could also be a theological liberal. You could be a lawyer that belonged to the Sadducee party or some other group. Now, we could, <laughs> we could splice hairs here, but that's not the point. The point is that we understand the big picture and take warning from Jesus woes here. So we won't get into the nuance. Just, just think Pharisees, religious party, lawyers, paid theological professionals. The important, th important thing, excuse me, to hear is, of course, the content of what Jesus is warning against. And his first woe to the lawyers here, his fourth woe in this passage is found in verse 46. He charges a complaint, Jesus does, against these lawyers, these religious experts who load people up with burdens but won't lift a finger to help. You see, these experts 
had created a system of hundreds of laws, man-made laws, to add to the original ones God had, God had given in the Old Testament. Take, for instance, the Sabbath. This is low-hanging fruit. What starts out as honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy ends up being that any item used for work can't even be touched on the Sabbath. When did God say that? He didn't, but these Religious experts built a, their own list of rules, 39 of them in fact, as a hedge around honor the Sabbath and keep it holy that were more man's requirements. Another one, you, you can't take more than 500 steps on the Sabbath. And Jesus' accusation here is, you're crushing people. You are laying burdens on my people that they can't carry and neither can you. Yet you don't lift a finger to help them, you expert in Old Testament law. Jesus' next accusation in verses 47 to 51 is even stronger. This woe is the longest in the passage. Let's just, let's just read it together. Verse 47, woe to you, talking to the lawyers now, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you're witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You kill the prophets just like your fathers. You share in their guilt. Jesus says, woe to the posers who are building and dressing up these tombs, all the while guilty of the same sins. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, Jesus is saying. Your fathers killed them, and you're cut from the same cloth. You've got the same murderous intent. Was Jesus right? There's a simple answer to that question. Yeah. Were not these the very same religious leaders who would clamor for and scheme up and see through the murder of the Son of God standing in front of them? The perfect prophet? This, of course, is a classic case of like father, like son. And this phrase is interesting. From Abel, the first righteous martyr, in Scripture, to Zechariah, considered the last martyr in the Old Testament canon, Jesus is essentially saying from A to Z, in other words, all of them, you're guilty. Now, to be fair, for those of you who are interested in digging a little deeper, there is some dispute about which Zechariah Jesus is talking about. Is it Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest? whom King Joash treacherously stones to death in 2 Chronicles 24? Is it that Zechariah? Or is it instead Zechariah the son of Berechiah who wrote the book that bears his name, the book of Zechariah? Now I believe, just if you're 
interested, if you care. I believe it's choice B. Jesus says in, in the parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 23, that he's talking specifically about Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Now, we don't get his death recorded in Scripture, but I think Jesus is helping us connect the dots to the prophet Zechariah was also one who paid the ultimate price for his faith. We don't have time to get into all that, but just if you want to explore that further... I hope, though, on a broader level, this is starting to make a little bit more sense. Why is Jesus so worked up about this one? He's eating with the very people who are about to kill him. This is akin to Jesus eating with Judas. These are the very same religious leaders that are going to clamor for his death on the cross, and in a very real sense, the death of all of the prophets is wrapped up in the death of this capital P prophet of Christ himself. Their treachery would be the height of all treacheries. It would be the bloody culmination of all rebellion against God. But you might say, how is that fair? How is it fair that this generation is guilty of the death of all of the prophets? Well, simple. All of the prophets are pointing to whom? This one. To Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He is the very substance of all of their prophetic messages. So killing the one that each and every one of these prophets points to means that you are agreeing with, you are essentially complicit in the death of those prophets too. Do you see? You got the same hate in your heart, Jesus said, and your treachery will be the same as theirs. Last woe, verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. So, the very ones who are supposed to be leading God's people, pointing to God, pointing to God's kingdom, are actually blocking the way. It's no wonder, then, why their response to Jesus is offense. Look at verses 43, or excuse me, 53 and 54. Their response to Jesus is violence. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to scheme. They began to press him hard, to to provoke him, and to speak about many things, to speak about many things, lying in wait. This is like a hunting term, to catch him in something he might say. Their response to this truth, this offensive truth from God the Son, is violence. Friends, you know God's truth is, not just for them, but for us, sometimes offensive. The gospel is offensive, but this truth is a truth we need. I've said it before, and I will say it again. I think here in Southwestern Pennsylvania, 2023, 
one of the greatest mission fields today is in church buildings on Sunday mornings. It's not hyperbole. We live in a region, you know this, we live in a region where so many folks want to check the Christian box because they grew up that way. Their parents dragged them to church. They, right, they, they, they sort of believe in God and they're trying to be a good person. A lot of people identify as Christians. Even some people who dutifully darken the doors of churches on Sunday mornings. And yet, if there was any people who were church people, it was these people to whom Jesus is seeking. Do you see this? This is the cream of the religious crop. These are the pastors and the seminarians. These are the theologians. And Jesus comes out swinging because he loves them enough to disassemble their self-righteous wickedness. They need to be saved too. Friends, I don't know about you, but I need to hear Jesus' rebuke. Like David needed to hear the rebuke of Nathan. Like Isaiah seeing an image of God on His glorious throne and the train of His robe fills the temple. I too need to say, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Not woe is them, all those jokers out there who aren't even trying to follow you, God. No, woe is me. Friendship Communion Church, I want to say this very gently and very seriously. If Jesus can look at a room full of top-notch Bible scholars and theologians, a room filled with religious leaders and moral and social conservatives... That's who the Pharisees were. And say to them six times, Woe, 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 woe. Then perhaps it's possible that there are some even here today who need to hear this sharp but loving rebuke of Jesus, the Savior. To set aside our own semblance of self-righteousness. Our own ruler of rules and ways to please God. The truth is, excuse me, we are no better than they are. We're made of the same stuff. I've been singing all week. This has been a hard one to prepare, prepare for. I've been singing all week, confronted with my own sin and hypocrisy. Created me. Remember the old Keith Green song? Some of you remember going way back. Created me a clean heart, God. Renew a right spirit within me. I need these woes. I need to be warned from my own self-righteous inclinations. I need your kind and loving rebuke, Jesus. And the truth is, 
He's here because He loves us. He's not just stepping into the arena of humanity and swinging knockout punches and then walking off into the sunset. He's here because He set His face to Jerusalem and He's going to die for them. The truth is, this same Jesus who pronounces these woes is the same Jesus who will take these woes onto himself on the cross. So that we might have eternal life. You stuffy religious people. Jesus said you heap up burdens on people that they can never fulfill. You know what Jesus said to those who see their own sin and cry out for his mercy? He says, come to me. I'll take your burdens away, all you who labor and are heavy laden. and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Throw off the, the yoke of these man-made religious traditions. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is our Savior who heals the sick, who raises the dead, who speaks with God's power, who ushers in the kingdom, and who loves us enough to speak to our sin and hypocrisy. Yes, and enough to die for it so we can have eternal rest. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for Jesus. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. He's everything. He's our light, our, our hope, our song. God, we just pray this morning that you would help your people see our own sin and hypocrisy. Lord, that we would not shrug and roll our eyes at these smug religious leaders in the first century and then to a lesser extent walk in their ways. Father, all we have is the righteousness that you give us in Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for exposing our sin, for carrying it to the tree to pay for it all and rising again so that we could walk without the heavy burden of trying to please you on our own. Create in us, Lord, here at Friendship Community Church, a pure heart. As David wrote in the midst of his own sin, renew a right spirit within us, God. May we be people who exalt in Jesus. He's all we have. And we pray now in his name. Amen. Would you stand and sing one more time?